Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible study here at St. Paul's this morning, and welcome to you who are here in the gym, to those listening in the St. Louis uh, area on AM850 KFUO, and worldwide on KFUO.org. As is our usual practice here at St. Paul's, we'll be looking at the lessons for the upcoming Sunday, for December 1st. Yes, we're already getting into December, and that means the lessons we're looking at are for the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, There are handouts over by the Bibles on the bleachers to my left, if anyone does not have a handout yet. Uh, But before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you as your people thankful for the gifts that you have given us. Thankful that you have come into this world through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, are present among us and will come again. As we prepare to study your word, let its truth be of the utmost importance in our lives so that all that we do in our lives may not be to the glory of ourselves, but to the glory of your holy name. Amen. So let's maybe talk about start. It seems appropriate before the first Sunday in Advent. Just a quick, brief uh, background a little bit on just what is Advent. It's obviously a time of the church here, something many people are very familiar with. And the word Advent itself literally means just the coming of an important event, person, place, or thing. So in the context of our faith and in the context of the Bible, what are we on the Advent of? Maybe the first knee-jerk reaction say, well, we're on the Advent of Christmas. The Christmas is coming. And yes, that is true, but you'll see in the lessons when we look at them today, there is a strong focus in the advent of Christ's second coming in Advent, that we don't just look at the past, but we look at how Christ has come, he still comes among us through his word and sacraments, and how he will come again. So now let's dive into the text. Uh, So we're in Isaiah chapter 2, the Old Testament lesson for the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, The context of the verse is kind of important here because this takes place in a time in which uh, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah are under great threat. And so when Isaiah gives these prophecies, there's a lot going on in the minds of the people. In fact, chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah deal primarily with the oracles or with oracles of judgment and salvation against Judah and Jerusalem. To highlight this, we only need to look back a few verses into chapter 1. If you have uh, your Bibles with you, you can turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verse 21 how the faithful city has become a harlot or one who is unfaithful, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get my relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye 
and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Not exactly the most uplifting few verses in the Old Testament. And yet this was the prophecy, the vision that Isaiah saw that he was proclaiming to the people. And then we get into Isaiah chapter 2, just after that last verse. It starts in 2 verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple interesting points there about that little prefix before we get into what the word is. The first is in chapter 1, Isaiah describes himself as seeing a vision, and this is what the vision shows him. And so this word, we are not sure if this is possibly an independent word or simply a subset of that overall vision, a continuation from chapter 1. But the other thing that is clear is just because it says the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's just some word, but rather the implication is very strongly, this is God's word. This is what God has shown Isaiah. And we get into verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. It shall come to pass in the latter days. What does that mean? What he sees, what's about to happen, is going to occur in a time not yet quite known. The prophets did expect Yahweh, the Lord, to act sooner, rather than later, but something like this shows that it's clear they don't know the exact moment when he is going to act, when these exact latter days will occur. All he knows is that they are coming and that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. As the highest of the mountains means it's the chief mountain. It's the head mountain. There's not going to be something greater than this mountain. That for it to be established as the highest of the mountains, lifted up above the hills, there'll be no doubt as to what or who is the greatest. Who is the most powerful? What is the stronghold that is simply the strongest. But then there's a strange couple of lines in Isaiah's prophecy. And, uh, and all the nations shall flow to it, 
And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now, I say it's strange because if you think about it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. What do we think of as typically flowing? A river, right? A river flows. Do you notice where the people are flowing, where this flowing is occurring? They shall flow to what? The highest mountain. How do rivers flow? What direction do they flow in? Down, right, yeah, downhill. I'm not aware of at least of any rivers that flow up a mountain. And yet, when the people are described as flowing, they're flowing up to this highest mountain. And it's the mountain of the Lord. It should be for the Lord's people. And yet, who does it say is flowing to that mountain? All the nations, in Hebrews, the goyim, those who are not Jewish, those who are not the sons of Israel. And so this mountain that should be for the people of Israel, all of a sudden you have all the nations flowing to it. Now maybe that doesn't seem quite so strange in today's context, but for 740 approximately B.C. in Judah, that would have been a very provocative, somewhat strange statement that all the nations are going to be flowing to this highest mountain, the mountain of God. And we continue in our reading uh, as they say to one another, Come, let us go up, the mount, up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. And we get the third kind of strange element of this in that uh, section of Isaiah chapter 1 that I read previously, how were the people of Israel described? Or the people of Judah, I should say. As unfaithful, unchaste. The word means like a prostitute, literally. That they are not being faithful to God. And so there's great irony when all the nations, those who are not God's people, they say to one another, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. That the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, they're not saying this to themselves, but all the other nations, the nations who wouldn't necessarily at this point know the God of Jacob, they're the ones who say to themselves, let us go to the God of Jacob. Let us go to this highest mountain so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So you have this picture of these nations, these nations who, in the minds of those in Judah, 
did not respect nor follow the true God. And yet Isaiah gives us prophecy and paints this picture. Not only will they come seeking the ways and the laws and the word of the Lord, but they'll come flowing even up the highest mountain for it. And we get to verse 4. He, that is the Lord, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. He shall judge disputes between nations. What does it mean that the Lord would be able to judge disputes between nations? What would they have to view him as? As God. He would have to have the highest importance in their lives. And here this judging disputes actually has a positive uh, kind of connotation to it. Because if you look, how does he judge the disputes? Or more importantly, what is the result of his judgment? Two nations have a dispute, and does one get the judgment and destroy the other? No. But rather, their swords. And in those days, when a nation had a dispute, it didn't send its ambassador to the king. Well, it may have, but very rarely. Would it send its ambassador to the king and try and work out you know, a way to get rid of some sort of economic tariff or something like that. No, often if there were disputes among nations and a nation wanted to confront another nation, they brought their soldiers. It would be a force and they would look to destroy that nation. That's how things got decided. And yet what happens in this prophecy when the Lord judges disputes They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. God does not rule against these two disputing nations, but rather swords become plowshares in these latter days. Spears become pruning hooks. War becomes peace. And you see, start to see why there's so much meaning here in what Isaiah is sharing with the people and that word that he saw, that truly no nation will lift up sword against other nation. No swords, no spears, No war. And the last part I think is pretty cool. They will never learn war anymore. This isn't a temporary peace that he's talking about. This is a final peace, an eternal peace. It's not like they're going to put down their swords for a week of goodwill and cheer or even a month to get into some sort of holiday spirit, but rather... There is no more war, and they're not going to learn it again. 
And then you have the last verse of the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 2, verse 5. Isaiah's plea to all people, but specifically the people of Judah, the house of Jacob, those who should be acting as these nations are acting, who should be flowing to the mountain of the Lord, who shall be looking to him to settle their disputes. He pleads with them, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's some pretty serious implications in those five verses. The first is, it's implied that currently they're not walking in the light of the Lord. However, that does not mean that somehow they'll never be able to or that they shouldn't. He implores them to walk in a manner to which he saw the nations, the other folks walking, to view the God of Jacob as he sees in this vision as the way those who did not previously know him see him. And you also have the reality that in those latter days, who is God for? So often in this time, there was a strong sense of This is our God and only our God. And yet here we read clearly that all nations shall flow to that highest mountain, to Mount Zion, the mountain that is established above all other hills, the chief, the head, the utmost important mountain. And they shall all come to God and he shall give them peace. So at this point, I'll open up if anyone has any questions about these first five verses in Isaiah. There's a lot there, I know. So so the question is, does this apply to the New Testament church as well? Is this just Old Testament prophecy um, and that is only for the people of Judah? Uh, The first answer to that is, In Isaiah's context, he was clearly directing this to the people of Judah. But as we know, God's word is for us as well. And these latter days, um, and maybe I should have explained this a little more, what does it mean when he says latter days? What does this picture where all these nations come to this highest mountain, there's no more war and there's no more peace, what does this maybe, uh, what images does this perhaps conjure in our minds? The final judgment, Christ's second coming. That's one of the reasons this is a great text for Advent 1, because for those in the Old Testament, what were they waiting for? What coming? What was the Advent they wanted to be in the Advent of? Well, the Messiah. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. Now, we who live in the age of the church, in the New Testament church, what are we waiting for? Well, also the Messiah to come for a second time. We're not necessarily on the advent of the Messiah coming for the first time. That's already happened. But we are very much in the advent, the coming of Christ's second coming. And so these latter days here, these days that Isaiah uh, describes to the people of Judah, 
their final judgment, their Christ's second coming. So yes, that's a good point. I'm glad you asked that question because I should have probably touched on that a little bit more. But yeah, those latter days, this isn't just, you know, 20 years after Isaiah wrote this. That's the latter days he was talking about. But no, that continues for us, us who are on the advent of Christ's second coming. That's why I think it's important when we look at Advent, and you may notice this as we continue uh, looking at the different lessons for Advent 1, we don't just think of Advent as what we do to await Christmas Day. Because Christmas Day has already happened. The true Christmas Day occurred some 2,000 plus years ago in Bethlehem. But we are still very much in an Advent. And sometimes with Advent's connection to Christmas, not that that's a bad thing at all, but we lose sight of what we're truly in the Advent of. All right, any further questions on Isaiah chapter 2? No? Okay, let's move on to the epistle reading. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. This section of Romans is what some would call Paul's exhortation section of Romans. It's the section that would begin, uh, if you were to split the book up, usually in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Do not be conformed, but be transformed, and to offer your body as living sacrifices. In chapter 12, he encourages the people to abhor what is evil and love what is good, pray unceasingly. And then my favorite and yet also the hardest exhortation in chapter 12, to bless those who persecute you. But Paul continues those encouragements, those exhortations into chapter 13. He starts chapter 13 by Uh, reminding the Christians in Rome that every person should be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in uh, subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. That's Romans 13, 1 through 6. And that gives you just a little bit of background, that and the brief uh, kind of synopsis of chapter 12 I gave you, on where we're at when we get to our epistle reading for next week. Uh, One of the things that you may notice is, if you look look at the lectionary, uh, verses 8 through 10 are in parentheses. Maybe you've seen this at other times when you're looking at an upcoming reading or you're, you want to look at the why, um, you know, maybe further study on a reading and you notice that perhaps you either did or did not include for a particular Sunday that which the verses in parentheses. 
The reason they do that is those verses, they're not bad, of course, but rather the main point is found in those verses that are not in parentheses. But I included them here because I think it's a good, uh, they're, they're a good little section that highlights the main point Paul's trying to make in verses 11 through 14. So we start in chapter 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Uh, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans 13, verse 8. Now, when you first read that, what may be what you're thinking of? What, do you, what may be what you think Paul's instruction is? Just in verse 8. The first commandment, certainly love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. You shall have no other gods, right? The first and greatest commandment. Um, but also that owe no one anything. What do you think Paul means by that? Owe no one anything. Well, at first glance, it may seem like Paul's saying, don't have any debt ever, right? And in fact, there are certain instances where uh, people would say that's exactly what he means. But remember, context is always key. So if you look at what he was talking about just before that, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So what is he trying to say when he says, owe no one anything? It's when you have a legitimate uh, amount due, you pay it. That includes your taxes, because none of us, right, have a problem paying our taxes. We always love to have that money taken out of our accounts each week when we get a paycheck, right? No, of course, we, it's the same issue that they were dealing with in Rome. They didn't want to pay taxes. Very rarely do people want to volunteer to pay more in taxes. And some were trying to say, well, we aren't subject to Rome. That's why he starts by talking about being subject to your governmental authorities. And if someone has revenue owed to them, if someone's done a job for you, pay them. And if someone... Uh, has respect owed to them. Respect them. Honor to whom honor is owed. And it's interesting. You see how he kind of plays with the words a little bit. Um, when he says, owe no one anything, well, except you actually do owe someone, actually everyone something, except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So you can see how Paul kind of uses a little bit of wordplay here where he says, you know, don't owe anything, don't owe anything, don't owe anything, well, except owe sacrificial love to everyone. And in verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And continuing into verse 10, 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what's this point here? You are to owe love to everyone, sacrificial love, especially to your neighbor. To everyone you come across, this is what you owe them. In addition to making sure you pay your taxes and give people revenue, you also owe them sacrificial love. And what does the person who loves his neighbor not do? Well, he doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't murder his neighbor if he loves him. He doesn't steal from his neighbor. He does not covet his neighbor. And so Paul's really trying to highlight, and you'll see in verses 11 and 14, why this section highlights his main point here. But these are the actions Christians are supposed to take. There is a, you know, responsible action to take as a Christian. It's not a licentious type life we get to live, that we somehow have a license to do whatever we want, but rather, very specifically, we are called to do these things and out of love. And so we get into verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Another point that Paul is trying to highlight before I get into that, I had written down, I almost forgot to mention, is here, Paul, you have a very accurate representation of how Paul views love. Paul's view of love is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling that kind of fades in and out, depending if someone's made us mad or not, but rather it's a very strongly action-based response to the condition of our heart. And so in verse 11, when he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, he highlights several kind of key points for us to consider. First, salvation is nearer to us. What does that mean? Well, there's the first reality, which is we are now getting closer to our death, right? It's not exactly the most comforting in one sense reality, but at the, other, and at the same time, it's also a comforting reality for those who know that their salvation is in Christ Jesus. And how t- what's maybe the second way that salvation is nearer to us than when we first uh, believed? Well, this gets us back into the Advent question. We are now closer to Christ's second coming, to that final judgment than we were five minutes ago, or 2,000 years ago, even. And in verse 12, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And this starts one of the key points Paul makes in this section. Or he uh, contrasts the things done in darkness, contrasts darkness itself with light. Yes, that darkness is sin. It's the absence of God. And the light, putting on the light, putting on the armor of light is what we're given when we know who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, The armor of light is the security that we have in Christ. And it's not the only time he uses 
this type of armor uh, metaphor, of course, in Ephesians 6. He has the full armor of God, which is a very well-known section. But Paul highlights here that the night is the absence of salvation and that the day is the reality of who Christ is and what that means for us. And then he continues into verse 13. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not as in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, finishing with, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I told you that uh, this section is part of the exhortation section of Paul's letter to the Romans, a section that started with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's point is in view of God's mercy, in view of that armor of light, we are called to walk properly in that light. And what does that mean to walk properly in the light? Well, not do the things that you do in the dark. There's the reality, you know, the darkness being sin. But it's interesting when he lists those specific uh, items, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You think about when most of those things occur during a day, usually those are the type of things that may occur at night, very literally. And then there's also a third point he makes by listing those things, that they're not just random things, but these were often the practices of those who believed in the Roman gods. And in those religious festivals, these were the type of things, the overindulgence, the sexual immorality that were encouraged. And so what is he reminding them also that the darkness is? Well, false religions, false beliefs, false gods themselves who would encourage this sort of behavior. There's a direct contrast between the nights and what is done in the darkness of sin and in the light and life we have in Christ. And he's very clear, the night is over. You don't get to hit the snooze button in the morning or sleep in. As a Christian, you don't have an excuse to, you know, punch your alarm one more time to give yourself that five minutes of sleep you think you need, those five minutes in darkness, but rather the light is a reality, and it's here. The night is over. And finally, in verse 14, you have, again, him hearkening back to that armor that he talked about when he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a strong association here between what happens when someone's in darkness and when someone's in the light. And so Paul's reminder is that one of the things that as Christians we are called to do is to not live as if we do not know 
Jesus Christ. You literally put him on. As Lutherans, when in our lives would we maybe say we are given Christ? In our baptism. That in our baptism, we are literally put into Christ. God does the work. We're not pulling ourselves or pulling him to us, but rather he comes down to us freely and washes us clean with the water and the word. And then the kind of final point that Paul is trying to make by using this night and darkness uh, versus the light and daytime type metaphor is a reminder that we are living for that day when Christ does return. And as we live in waiting, as we live in the advent, there's that word again, right? As we live in the advent of that day, we are called to do so in a certain way. Not so that we become justified or not, we don't live this way so that we become forgiven based on our works, but rather from the reality that we are justified, from the reality that we are freely forgiven, this is what we're called to be. So you can see why for Advent 1, when we consider the Advent, what we're in the Advent of, I should say, the second coming of Christ, why this epistle lesson is a great reminder of how we are called to live as those who have put on Christ Jesus in our baptism those who trust in him for not only our light, but our life, how we are called to live as we await that coming. All right, I'll open it up if there's any questions on the epistle reading. Yes. Yes. So the question is, when in verse 11, when uh, Paul writes, besides this, you know the time that the hours come for you to wake uh, from sleep, what, what is he kind of getting at? Because no one knows the hour when Christ's second coming will occur. But you brought up a great point, which is that waking up occurs when you put on Christ in your baptism. He talks about the reality that they're in the daytime, that the night has ended. They don't get to pretend like they're in the night anymore. They're not in the night anymore, but rather uh, they're awakened from their sleep, meaning they know the truth. They are enlightened to the truth of Christ, uh, and then Paul continues with what that then means for them in their life. So is that kind of... All right, any other questions from Romans chapter 13? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, in both the Old Testament and the Epistle lesson, they're only uh, between six and five verses each, and yet there's so much stuff in there that at first glance we can sometimes gloss over. And uh, the Epistle lesson especially is a great reminder that our baptism, remembering our baptism, it's not just a passive thing we think about, but it's actually something we do. And so, yeah, there's a lot in that gets packed into these uh, 
what would be, you know, compared to other readings, perhaps a shorter set of readings, but there, there's quite a lot in there. Well, exactly. So the question is, was Paul at all talking to the Romans for non-Christians? And absolutely, you know, this letter would have been read by the Roman church. So you do have that context, right? There is a specific context to who he's writing to. But what's the implications of saying, you know, do not act in this behavior? Well, that's to also, that's for all people. It's not just for those in the Roman church, but Paul is uh, writing definitely that no one should be doing this. That, yes, it was. And it, these, that's why he uses those specific, you know, it kind of seems maybe a little crass that he would start with, uh, uh, where are we at? Verse 13, uh, he starts by saying, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Those may seem like, a, <laughs> he went from zero to 100 almost to start with that. But he, the reason he included that was those were the very things that were happening, happening in the Roman religious festivals. They included binge drinking and orgies. And there's really no nice way to get around that reality that he's calling that out specifically. And not only as a reminder for Christians not to be tempted to participate in that, but also to call to repentance those who would do such a thing who are not yet Christian. Uh, so yeah, so I don't know if that kind of helps answer your question, Don. All right. Any other questions then on uh, Romans chapter 13? All right, well then let's look at the gospel lesson. And the gospel lesson is probably a familiar one, and maybe one that seems mislocated in the first Sunday of Advent, because the gospel lesson is the triumphal entry from Matthew chapter 21. It's supposed to be the Palm Sunday reading, right? What is it doing in December? Well, there's a couple key things as to why this gospel reading is a great one, not only for Advent 1, but a great one to remember at all times. But let's start with the text. Matthew 21, verses 1 uh, through 4. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, uh, and then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And in verse 5, we have a quotation from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So when we first read this, it's a pretty familiar section, right? This is something we've probably heard at least once a year for the majority of our lives on the Sunday right before Easter. And yet, think about what this could mean. Why is this at the start of Advent? What are some purposes that it could have there? Well, one, it's a great reminder that as we prepare for the coming, the second coming of Christ, and as we prepare to reflect on when he came as that baby in Bethlehem, his story cannot just simply be the Christmas story and end there. 
but rather we're reminded that what we are awaiting to come, not just the lowly baby, the infant, what we would say sometimes are the, those happy pictures we have of the nativity scene, but truly also the man who would ride this colt into Jerusalem and go up even to his death, who would humble himself to his death on a cross. And that truly, when we think of Christmas, we also think of the Easter story. Just like when we think of the Easter story, the reality that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, we remember how that man, God in the flesh, came into the world. It's kind of a nice reminder that we don't get to just pick and choose at different times of the year which part of Jesus' life we want to focus on, but we focus on the whole of Christ's life at all times. We continue into verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is a great reminder that in Advent, who are we awaiting now, this may seem like a rudimentary question, but who are we awaiting the coming of? Jesus. The one who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth of Galilee, same one who rode a donkey into Jerusalem to a triumphant entry, and yet then, just a few days later, would be hung on a cross by those same people, many of them who were cheering when he came in and then rose from the dead. So while it may seem like this is a little bit of a mislocation to have the Palm Sunday narrative and the first Sunday in Advent, it's a great reminder that the whole story is put into view in Advent and in Christmas and into Epiphany and Lent, that we don't get to just focus on, you know, this, this is my time to really think about the baby Jesus in Advent. No, this is your time to think about Jesus. Just like on Christmas Day, this is your time not just to think about the baby Jesus and, you know, his little diaper in a manger and to keep it nice and safe and cuddly and it's not really offensive to anyone, but it's a reminder that, no, we worship just Jesus, all of who he is and what he's done for us. And that Jesus is exactly who we await for, who we're in the advent of, in his second coming. So it's kind of a, what would seem to be on the surface, a little bit of a strange gospel reading, and yet is a great reminder that even on Christmas, even in Advent, we still think about the whole story of salvation that God has done for his people. We're getting a little bit short on time, so I'll open up that to any questions about the Palm Sunday narrative anyone uh any questions about why per, you know 
No? Okay, cool. We're going to get through all four. It rarely happens. Well, it's, uh, we'll probably have to speed through the psalm a little bit. But the psalm, the appointed psalm for Advent 1, is Psalm 122. It begins with the usual uh, title, tells you what type of song it was, a song of ascents, and who uh, wrote the psalm, David. And we begin in verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now just in those first two verses there, which of those readings does this kind of remind you of? Reminds me of the Old Testament reading that all nations were flowing to this mountain, to where the Lord was, and that they were within its gates. And we continue into verse 3 Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, there's something interesting there because tribes, you know, thinking especially of the Old Testament lesson, we have two direct sense, right? The first is the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, which can be described as tribes. But if we think about what we read in our Old Testament reading, who else could be those tribes that are going up uh, to Jerusalem to give thanks to the name of the Lord? All nations. And so we have that connection again back to the Old Testament reading to the reality that all will come to the house of the Lord. In verse 5, there thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And in verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. So you get this picture of people coming into the city, coming in to the place where the Lord is. And what does David say he's going to do? Well, for his companions' And his brother's sake, he will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, he will seek your good. We need the good of others. So here we have a psalm where David is encouraging not only that all would come into the city. And here Jerusalem can be really seen in an eschatological, end times sense. That is the city where we will, or all will come together to worship and glorify God in the second coming. And is for their sake, David says, he will do good. So we're about out of time, but are there any final questions about any of the lessons before we wrap up? Or Advent 1 for that matter. No? All right. Well, let's end with a word of prayer. 
Christ, as we await for your coming, we thank you for the many gifts you have given us in our lives. We thank you for the great sacrifice you made on our behalf so that we need not shrink in fear when you come again, but in security and in the hope of that promise that is everlasting, stand confident and firm as one redeemed by your precious blood. We pray that as we enter this Advent season, we would keep the focus not on the material things of this world and the temptations that we may have to make that our focus during Advent and the Christmas season, but that we would focus on you and what you've done for us, what your life, your coming into this world as a baby boy, your dying and your resurrection from the dead means for us and the whole world. We pray that you would allow us to uh, show our gratitude and our, our thankfulness to you through how we treat uh, one another during this time so that all that we may do would not be for the glory of ourselves, but for the glory of your holy name. Amen.